Okay, so Colossians. We're going to jump into the book of Colossians. And this, I've been, um, over the last number of weeks, as I finished up reading Philippians, I start a number of weeks ahead, and I'll be kind of overlapping when I study. So I'm studying Colossians while I'm studying the end of Philippians at the same time. And I was just, there were parts of me, as much as I love Philippians, there were parts of me that was like, oh man, if I could just start talking about this now, like anticipation to start digging into Colossians is really good because this letter is just awesome. It is theologically rich. Paul is like, you can almost hear the inflection in his voice because he is just bringing so much of himself and his truth into um, this letter. Um, this letter is a, to a city that does not exist anymore, um, but it's still really important theology. And some of the things it's going to go over is things like standing firm against heresy in the church, which we could all learn a lesson from because the church doesn't do a good job doing that now. It doesn't do a good job um, where people in the church are willing to go to leadership and say, hey, I've got a question. What you said is incorrect. They will just let incorrect teaching continue to pour out of a church and they will pour their time, their efforts, and their money into something that is off point. And Paul is going to fix this here at Colossae. Uh, we'll discuss these heresies and where they start and their origins in depth as we go verse by verse through. So we're going to see a couple of different heresies pop up and Paul addresses them specifically right but he's writing this letter from rome he's still one of the prison epistles and it's about 60 to 62 uh, a.d and he'd be writing this about the same time he wrote the letter to the ephesians the, the letter that was delivered to ephesus um, and there's a a lot of parallels uh, with ephesians and colossians as a matter of fact the two are like sister books and there was some debate theologically uh, or critically, if you will, uh, over which one was written first and or delivered first. And I think from the evidence, it's Ephesians, but there are some people who think that it might be the other way around. Um, I don't think that's ultimately really that important, but I think from a practical stance, we can find it was Ephesians and then Colossians. But this city, Colossae, it's in uh, Phrygia, um, and it's, uh, it's in the Roman Empire, it's a Roman province in Asia, and it's about 100 miles east of Ephesus. So you can see they're pretty close. And we talked about Ephesus and all the problems that they were having. So if you can imagine, if you're 100 miles east of such a giant trade city, you probably have a lot of similar issues going on, right? So it's still a major trade city, uh, and it endured through many ages. This is actually an ancient city. And if you look at the city, if you guys ever watched the old movies, the, that King Xerxes, who they considered the God man, like Xerxes, we can look back historically, actually conquered this city, the Persian king. Um, and as did the Greeks eventually conquered this city. And then as did the Romans conquer this city. So you look back historically, this place has been there a long time. And if you know anything about those cultures, they didn't just go conquer little insignificant cities. They Essentially, like you would today, you would go for the places that had resources or people or, or military power or were bastions for their military or their production so that you could conquer them and have control. So this was an important city, and that's why it's noted in history. So um, one of the things that made it important was this city had chalk mines. So chalk, like, like you write with. Um, that were that they used to create dyes and materials 
Um, and they also developed wool products. So they were a production city. They were a big blue collar city. They would mine chalk for dyeing materials and then they would um, shave animals and make wool. So they made a lot of stuff. So an important city for trade. But the city doesn't last much longer than after Paul's letter. It just kind of disappears into history and nobody really knows why. But the main trade route that went by it was diverted at one point in time. So that might be uh, why. So the city, the road was actually diverted to go to Laodicea, which we see a letter actually written to Laodicea at one point. Uh, and the city eventually just kind of ceases to exist. They build other roads, but you don't see the same traffic going through it anymore, much like you would if you've ever driven uh, Route 66 at some point in your life. You know, you can be on the 40 and there's stuff and you can get off Route 66 and there's these little towns that used to be <laughs> bustling centers that are just, they're just abandoned. They're little ghost towns, right? Like cool looking little ghost towns. It's, just a, it's kind of the same thing that happened to those guys. Bless you. But this city had kind of a little bit of a different twist to it because it was mostly Gentile. We didn't see as many Jews there. So with the Gentiles bring other theological heresy problems than the Judaizers as we saw like in Ephesus, right? Or in Galatia. So we're going to see other Gentile religions become kind of the problem. There's a small number of Jews there and we're going to see that because he is going to address Judaizers again. But you'll mostly see that when Paul is correcting heresy, it's due to other pagan faiths. And we'll talk about some of those and what they are and what they look like then as opposed to now and when they developed. Um, but there are also some, uh, a, a large group of non-Jews and they're trying to manipulate Christianity. This was not just people who thought differently. Like they're making their way into the church and they're trying to change how the church taught, how it looks, the way it, uh, the way it presented itself and what they thought about who God is and how you get to eternity from here. And this is really important. And we're going to talk about some of those things as well, right? Paul is not the founder of the church here, which is kind of interesting, right? So Paul makes his way to all these cities and people know Paul, but Paul had never been uh, to this city before. So you, it makes you wonder like, why is Paul writing a letter to the city? It's kind of interesting. He's writing this letter along with Timothy as they exhort this guy named Epaphras as the faithful minister to the church in Colossae. That's how he opens his letter up. So this guy, Epaphras, he was saved in the city of Ephesus um, and is most likely the founder of the church there. And that's why Paul addressed him. So he's saved there while Paul is there preaching. And then he makes his way home to this other bustling city 100 miles away and starts a church. It's Church Planting 101. This is kind of how it all starts, right? And it turns into a big enough, robust enough church that obviously they are reaching out to Paul. Paul is reaching back out to them. There are things that need to be addressed. So it's a significant church. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and one of the important points that we need to address, and we're going to talk about it a little bit today, is what's called the Colossian heresy, which if you look back in the criticism of the Bible, this is when you look at Colossians specifically, it addresses some specific things that were coming up in the church about like the deity of Christ, uh, how you get into eternity. And we'll talk about those specifically as we get there. But Paul, while addressing false teachings that have arisen in the church, mainly dresses a heresy there that looks like Gnosticism. That's what it looks like. So the Gnosticism comes from the word Gnostic, which comes from the word Gnosis, which basically means knowledge. 
So Gnosticism. So um, here, focusing on becoming more knowledgeable. That's Gnosticism in its best. And it comes from that Greek word, gnosis, right? And there are a number of points to be made about Gnosticism we're going to cover. And we're going to have some amazing takeaways from Paul's letter here about how it affected the church. How like, just like growing more uh, knowledgeable in yourself or some sort of wisdom brings you closer to God, which obviously we know is, is just not the way to do it. You can't just know more and get your way to God. That is not the way we do it, right? Higher knowledge type thing. Um, dualism is one of the points of Gnosticism that needs to be addressed in this. We'll talk about that. Gnostics believe in the flesh and the spirit being separate, separated in a manner which reveals that anything in the flesh is evil. So what is here is just all evil. And anything about the spirit is holy. So there's this dualism uh, of the body. And therefore, what is done in the physical bears no weight on what is done in the, spirit, uh, in the spiritual. So that brings along some dangerous stuff as it is, right? So like when we talk about sinfulness or transgressions, right? Their kind of idea was I can kind of get away with it, whatever I want here, because as long as I believe or know of, of deity or the end or, or eternity, I can kind of get away with whatever I want here. It's not holy living. It's this is all dirty and evil anyway, so I can act however I want. I can do whatever I want. And as we know, that is not the way Christ wants us to spend our lives here, right? Uh, they also believe that they'd attain some sort of higher truth or higher knowledge or divine knowledge, and they acquire this from mysticism. We've talked about mysticism a little bit before, and they are elevated above others and have a higher knowledge even than God. So like they can learn through philosophy and through sitting in groups and discussing things of higher education. You know, that's the way a lot of the Greeks were. I mean, they developed philosophy and they would philosophize themselves onto some sort of, you know, pulpit somewhere. They get to the point where they're like, I know everything. I am greater than God because I know so much. And of course, we know this is not true. That's part of Gnosticism. They deny the hypostatic union. We've talked about the hypostatic union before. Hypostatic union is the truth that Christ came as fully God and fully man. It's a mystery. It's hard to get. Theologically, we don't need to pull that apart today. But the Bible is very clear that Jesus was God as the second person of the Trinity. But Jesus was a man, born of a woman, existed here. We call that the hypostatic union. They would deny that. Um, in this theology from the word of God, remember, it's fundamental for what we believe. In order for him to have lived here and died on the cross, be crucified and actually die and be put in a grave, he had to be man. In order to raise himself from the dead, he had to be God. In order to be the propitiation for sin, he had to be God because he's holy and totally separate from who we are. So we had to be a clean sacrifice. So without that, we don't have the atonement for our sins. So it's very important. So they deny that. And what they would believe is they teach that God's spirit descended on Jesus at baptism, but it left him at his death. And that Jesus died just a man. And that Jesus as the man remained on the cross, but the God's spirit left him. So it's not biblical at all. So I want to back up a little bit because there's some debate about whether or not Paul was talking about Gnosticism. And uh, it's kind of an interesting story if you're a little bit of a Bible nerd, but it's interesting to cover anyway. There's some uh, modern heretical teachers 
who believe some weird stuff about this. One of which is Bart Ehrman, who teaches right up here. He's at UNC. Uh, and he teaches some really weird stuff about the Bible and about Paul. He's a non-believer who's a Bible scholar at a regular old university that's basically teaching kids out of Christianity in the South. Um, and he's a heretic. Um, but he claims that Colossians and Ephesians were written much later and were not written by Paul. And it's done by claiming that Gnosticism or at least the topics that look like Gnosticism that were addressed didn't exist until later in the second century. Of course, Paul is writing this letter in the middle of the first century, and he's saying it, ex it exists only later into the second century. And the only real evidence of this is that what's called the Nag Hammadi codices, which were some codices are groups of letters, uh, papyri, that were found about these ancient scrolls and texts in Greek and Coptic. They were found in 1945 and they were dated no earlier than the middle of the second century. But it still doesn't prove that that philosophy didn't exist earlier. All it proves is the writings exist over a hundred years later. So they could still be practicing that sort of stuff. They just didn't write it till later. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if you ever read a history book before, but a history book's not about today. It's about history it's about yesterday so they were writing things about the things that they were learning doing practicing before um in this argument it's kind of funny because this argument doesn't come up until about the middle of the 19th century so the 1800s and would completely break 1800 years of tradition about the authorship of the two letters so we have all of these guys who have this polemic view this argumentative view of the text for 1,800 years, agreeing that Ephesus and Colossians are written from prison, middle of the first century, and then 1,800 years later, somebody's like, oh, no, they weren't. And it's like, come on, come on, man, you need to do better than that. So not a very good argument. Uh, just to give it a little credence here, it breaks not only 1,800 years of tradition, but also the authorship of those two letters being that early. You're breaking the tradition of these guys, Arrhenius, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Origen, Eusebius, and all other early scholars that were great scholars of the Bible that agree who wrote them and when. Um, you're going to see names appear in Philemon and Colossians that reveal some parallels within the early Christian church. You're going to see names like Timothy, uh, Aristarchus, uh, Archippus, Mark, Epaphras, Luke, Onesimus, Demas. They all show up in both letters. Um, yet the letter to Philemon is not in question and when it was written. So we see some huge parallels between the two books. Now I already told you there were parallels in in Ephesians. Other evidences from history come from the Dead Sea Scrolls, which you may have heard of, found in 1947. Amazing documents. They were found in Qumran in 1947. Fragments of Jewish texts have been found to show that Gnosticism existed most likely in second century before Christ. So we're talking um, the second temple period or second temple Judaism had some sort of um, mysticism, Jewish mysticism that looks a lot like Gnosticism. So this stuff, it, it can't really be refuted. There's this really cool study that I found, if you're interested in nerding out a little bit, by this guy named Michael Heiser. And he explains in detail how we can rely on Colossians to be written by Paul in the 60s. 
and it addresses some sort of Gnosticism that was growing in the church already at that period of time that Paul would have needed to address. It's called the Naked Bible Podcast. It's a really good resource. I'm not sure about a lot of his other stuff, but he talks a lot about the Naked Bible Podcast. He talks a lot about Judaism and the old, uh, old uh, Jewish practices, and some of it's really phenomenal stuff. So we discuss these points about the history and the letters so that we know how we can rely on the text. This is what's important about this, and this is why I want to go over it, is because if you were to sit with somebody and they were to randomly from across the table look at you and say, Colossians wasn't written in the first century, what would your answer be? So now we know some of those points. You can be like, oh, I know it's reliable, right? And you don't need to know all of these points specifically. I'm fair with telling people I've studied it and I know it's reliable. You need to prove me wrong. So um, this is the important thing. What we know is that the dates, the authorship, the recipients, and the nature of the message are reliable. We can rely on God to give us his word. That's the other part. God wrote it. God put it together, not people, and that God is reliable. And critics will attempt to pull it apart by using presuppositional arguments, and that's what they do. People don't pull this apart because they're trying to make the Bible a better document. People pull it apart because they want you to lose your faith. That's what they do. They want you to question the Bible. That's it. They don't want to make the Bible a better document. Um, so these arguments lack all the information and they try to sway you from believing. And that's all they are trying to do. And we're going to prevent that by giving you 100% of the truth. So here's some of the topics we're going to cover and we'll finish with this. We're just going to do the topics um, just the, so that you understand what some of the things we're going to go over. Like I told you, this book is rich. This letter is awesome. We're going to discuss in depth what the preeminence of Christ looks like. So who is Christ? his superiority overall, and his deity, Christ as God. Look, the cults don't believe Jesus is God. The, the cults don't understand that in order for Jesus to be the propitiation of sin, he has to exist outside of creation. Why? If you think about this just for a second, without going into another study, if you look at how sin was atoned for, for the Jews, what type of lamb did it have to be? Spotless. Okay? So what in creation is spotless after the fall? Nothing. Everything is cursed on the earth. Everything falls underneath the realm of sin and death because of Adam and Eve's sin. Adam's sin. So because of that state of being, of sinfulness, Christ cannot be a creation. He cannot be just a man. He has to exist outside of creation in order that he is the spotless lamb as we know him as from Isaiah the lamb of God and because he is a spotless lamb he is now worthy to be the sacrifice for our sin if anyone else died on the cross besides God it doesn't work because he's the only one who's spotless and that's why he is um, the hypostatic union he came as a man yet he is a deity he is God and that's why that's important so we're going to discuss that. It's one of the problems with Gnosticism as well is that it challenges that truth and it can easily be applied to the contemporary church. Christ is the center of your life. Uh, our families, our study, our church, our worship becomes secondary to how we 
feel when we don't realize when we're talking about Jesus and Jesus loves me and Jesus is my friend and Jesus is my pal and Jesus is my love and we have a very emasculate view of who Jesus Christ is that he is also God and Lord over all creation. This is an important view. He's going to make us clear for the case of Christ's preeminence. So we'll get there. This is the second topic we're going to go over, the church as a place to know the real Jesus Christ in and have hope in him in glory. So we're going to talk about hope some more. We're going to discuss the importance of standing strong against false teachers. It's one of the things Paul's going to do here. If you're uncomfortable about false teachers and talk to me about it offline, we, Paul is going to bring the heat in this letter against people who teach false things. It is one of my passions. The church is not doing a good enough job looking at people at pulpits and saying that is incorrect. Because this is the deal. Think about your kids, your friends, your family. They are going somewhere where they are learning about their Savior and they are getting taught stuff that is incorrect. It is not right. It's not easy to approach people on this. Paul is going to do it face to face. It's important that we know this. It's about eternity. It's about people's lives. Um, the modern church hates this topic. They won't cover it. We're going to cover it. They stray away from the truth of the gospel and they try to do it their own way. We can have Jesus any way we want. He's all a cart. It ain't true. Jesus comes as God. You get him the way he comes. He comes as either your savior or your judge, period. That's it. That's how he comes. Um, the world is attracted to churches by music and fanciful preaching. The reality is that God who calls us to the church and we participate in the body of Christ as obedient believers, right? One of the other things we're going to talk about is baptism. We're going to talk about baptism and what a sacrament looks like for the church today. One of the other things we'll talk about is there's going to be some, some discussion of spiritualism and angels. And this is kind of a, a weird topic if you've never got into it, but Colossians does talk about some kind of some spiritual stuff. And what does that mean? And we'll, we won't get too far in the weeds, but we'll talk a little bit about what is, who are angels and, and what do they mean and how do they interact with us? What's that spiritualism um, look like, right? Um, some of it may be a little bit of a remnant of Second Temple Jewish spiritualism, and it may be early forms of pre-Gnosticism. Either way, Paul's going to make it abundantly clear where we stand in Christ Jesus and how that uh, uh, relates. And then where we find our value in it, right? Uh, there's going to be, uh, he's going to express some passion for the Christian understanding of being a new creation in Christ. And we've drilled down hard on this. I think it's really important for people to believe and understand that when you're saved, you are a new creation. You're new. You're brand new. We talked about this in closing in on Philippians. Leave the old stuff behind. I feel brand new. I don't need to bring all that junk with me. I'm a new creation. Paul's going to go over this again. We've heard Paul preach about this in earlier studies. It's extremely important that we understand that we're new. Um, not only is this, is this good news, it's, it's assurance of our salvation when we know that we're, we're made new. Um, it's also a call to respond like we're new creations. We act different. We talk different. We love different. We interact with each other different. We do church together different because we know that we're new and God has saved us. That should bring us joy. It's good news for us, right? We're different than we were before we were saved. We're going to talk about um, what a godly home looks like again, a little bit. And much like Paul's call to husbands and wives back in Ephesians, if you remember, we went over that. We talked about how we uh, wives submit to their husbands and husbands lay your lives down for your wives. We're going to go over that a little bit. It mirrors it just a bit from Ephesians 5. 
but he also addresses what that relationship looks like, not just between husbands and wives, but also what children should look like under that as well. He's going to address how kids res respond to their parents. So it'll be a good one for the young men in the room to pay close attention to as they are uh, listening to our study in this book. So uh, Paul's going to finish this letter by giving us a short lesson about our prayer life and that we sh uh, how we should take it to heart. And then he'll give us his final greetings as he ends this letter to the church at Colossae. So we're going to take our time with this letter. As a matter of fact, we're going to take our time so much as I started a couple weeks ago doing the first study, which will be next week. I couldn't make it past the second verse. So I won't apologize in advance. The first two verses have got enough stuff in it that we could spend hours talking about it. I tried really hard to make it through like verse six or verse seven. And as I was writing and studying and writing and studying, I encroach on like page five of my notes. And I'm like, there's no way anybody's going to listen to me past the like hour and a half mark. So we'll just cut it off at verse two. But I, I hope that you enjoy it because... Um, Next week, we're going to start digging in on what it means to be a saint. So you are all saints. You are all saints. You are believers. But what does that mean to be a saint? What does it really mean? Paul is a Jew who is telling a bunch of people what it means to be a saint, to be hagios, to be holy. It means something deeper than just us as regular North Americans because the culture that he was in, those words really had a very deep meaning. And we're going to drill down on that. And hopefully it's going to change your perspective about who you are as a new creation in Christ when he calls you a holy one. So you can take that with you this week if you want. Um, but we're also going to get reminded of this, the hope that abounds in our faith in the joy that is rooted in the truth of our Savior Jesus Christ. And that's the good news in this. The good news in this word is that he's going to remind us over and over about the hope that abounds in our faith and the joy, right? Not happiness, but the joy that is rooted in the truth of our Savior. This book is reliable. It is reliable in its dates. It's reliable in its authorship. It's reliable in who it was sent to. It's reliable as a lesson for keeping the church accountable. It's reliable as a lesson for how we love and learn as a family, not just a church family, but your individual family unit. And it's rooted in the truth of Jesus Christ. This will be a letter that strengthens us as a church group. This will be a letter that strengthens us and leads us to thanksgiving. And that's kind of the point that's going to happen here is we're going to get to the point where we're like, thank you, Lord, for giving us this. It's going to give us truths that help us become better. It's going to give us truths that help us understand our hope, give us truths that help us understand what he did for us and how he did it because he's God. It's also going to challenge us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And it's going to help us to bear good fruit as we increase in the knowledge of our loving God. So that is my prayer that this letter will bring these things to us. Pray with me. Father God, we are thankful for who you are and we are thankful for this letter and we are just hopeful lord that you will pour these lessons of love into us and pour the lessons of rebuke over us and help us to understand uh, just what it means to to be the church not do church lord but be the church as a family as a family of believers as a, as families who love one another care for one another serve one another pray for one another, 
uh, keep in contact with each, with each other throughout the week, constantly studying your word, Lord, that it would um, constantly be the truth in our lives, that we would look to it for guidance, that we would look to it for the truth, that we would look to it for, for comfort, uh, for advice, that we would just allow your word, Lord, to be the thing that guides every step of our lives and that our lives would be found worthy, Lord. Worthy because of your son, Jesus, who died on the cross for us and made us new creations. Father, we are thankful for your son, Jesus, and that sacrifice. And Father, we are thankful for this church group who gathers in your name. And we ask that you continue to richly bless it and that the things that we do and the words that we say and the sacrifices we make are sweet incense to you, Lord. And for that, we are thankful. We ask for all those blessings in his precious and holy name, Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>